Hey, I'm Mads. And I'm Debs. Together, we are true bullards. We love the bloody Swannies, and we do a review and a preview of Swannies games each and every week. And to anyone who wants to have a listen to our pod, jump on all good podcast suppliers, whether that's your Apple podcast or your Spotify podcast or your Google Chrome podcast. Jump on. That's where you'll find true bloods, and we appreciate the support. Thanks, guys. And the players knew that I wanted to go to Sydney, and Hawthorne didn't allow the deal to go through, didn't do the deal. So then I was actually stuck, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, you know, we're under contract. It's up to the football clubs to come to a, an agreement, and Hawthorne didn't do the deal. And then I think, you know, the next year was probably one of the hardest football, years of football I've ever had because I wasn't, wasn't in the leadership group. The boys knew I wanted to go to Sydney, but then even though you're still going to perform, and I think the first half of uh, 06 was really good at Hawthorne, but it's that perception and that feeling between the playing group that wasn't right. Hello all, welcome. It is the Bloods of Old podcast. Joel Brown, your host here. Find me on Twitter at Joel Brown underscore JB. And can you smell that? Mm, Yes, that is the sweet smell of the swans being back in the finals, baby. And don't we have our work cut out for us? We are taking on crosstown rivals, the GWS Giants. And I'll tell you what, history is on the Giants' side as well. Swans and GWS, they have faced off twice before in finals. We go back to 2016 in a qualifying final and an elimination final back in 2018 with the Giants beating the Swans in both clashes. So history to be made with the faithful if they can get up. And it's on mutual ground being held down in Tassie at the University of Tasmania Stadium. And it looks like Mills and JPK will be missing uh, due to injury, but we'll have to wait and see. But I tell you what, love footy finals. Such an exciting time to be a footy fan, and a Swans fan, of course. But even more exciting times for the Bloods of Old podcast. Got some great interviews in the pipeline. But just a reminder, if you want to support the show, give Bloods of Old a like on Facebook, a follow on Twitter, at Bloods of Old. We're on all podcast platforms, but if you're of the iTunes slash Apple persuasion, if you give the pod a five-star review, just like old mate Kenny has, who said, just listen to the Paul Bevan interview, awesome, was a great look back in time, waiting for a Luke Ablett interview. Well, Kenny, I have actually reached out to Luke via LinkedIn, still waiting to hear back, but perhaps I should uh, touch base. Uh, Would absolutely love to have Luke on the show, that's for sure. But be like Kenny and give the Bloods of Old podcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and I will read it out on the show. But that brings us to the main event, my interview with Peter Spider Everett. 39 games and 16 goals with the Sydney Swans. That's 39 games out of a total 291 games in a great AFL career. I mean, Peter Everett, Spider Everett, one of the true characters of this great game. And just a side note before we do get into the interview, it was recorded before Adelaide Crows player Tex Walker's racial slur and subsequent uh, apology. And uh, I refer to that as Spider and I do touch on racism and the AFL. So Peter Spider Everett, after this quick break, you're on the Bloods of Old podcast. Everyone knows his name. Now everyone will know the truth. Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers. In 89, when Halloween 5 came out, 
this out with some friends. At that moment in the lobby of the theater after it was over, you could still hear the credits rolling in the background. And I said to the two friends I was with, I'm going to write Hollywood 6. And I got a call. Mr. Vaughn would like to meet you. They're up against a production deadline start date and they don't have no script. Who is the man in black? He's like, I have to answer this question. We can't just move on. We have to, we have to deal with this. And it was this magical time in my life where like, oh my gosh, all these things are happening. I'm working for Mr. Bacod. It's, and Donald Pleasance calls me one day and says, you know, it's the best Halloween he's read since the first. And then we started shooting. <laughs> well, we need kind of like a title, like a subtitle, something, you know, we had the return of Michael Myers, we had the revenge. And I said, well, based on what I'm seeing here, it's like, we should just call this the first. I was naive enough to not know my place, which was shut the f up, <laughs> you're the writer. I feel like he was not in it to make the best Halloween movie, he was in it to make the best career movie. No, no, like the fact that people say that is disturbing, like no. One of the things that does bother me about the digital online crowd is that they're very, they're literalists. I mean, at this point we probably would have seen Michael versus Jason versus Freddy. I mean, who knows, maybe one day that'll happen. The writer of Halloween 6, Daniel Ferns. Featuring on the debut episode of The Horror Mark. My next guest, a real cult figure of Aussie Rules footy. 291 games across three clubs. He's a St Kilda Hall of Famer, three-time All-Australian, radio personality and host of the Great Australian Doorstep. It's a big hello and welcome to Peter Spider Everett. Yeah, how are we? It's always a pleasure. Great be able to talk some footy. I'll tell you what, uh, great having you here and a great resume. I mean, that's only half of uh, some of the accomplishments that you've had in footy um, that I've just rattled off there. But I guess as a footy career goes, would you say the one thing that's eluded Spider Everett is a premiership medallion? Yeah, I kind of always, you know, I missed out in 97, broke a collarbone, so couldn't play. But uh, at the same time, I sit there and go, you know, unfortunately, you know, I played alongside, you know, quite a few other tall ruckmen that, uh, you know, I think you know, one, one at Hawthorne, a young kid had three knee recos by the time he was 21 and didn't get a lot of games of football. Uh, you've seen other players uh, through injury, unable to play a lot of footy. So for me, yep, would have always loved to be able to, uh, you know, win a premiership and be, you know, run out on the MCG that last week in September. I think that's all what we dream of. But you know, unable to do that, still being able to, you know, play a game that I absolutely love and to be able to, you know, run out there every weekend and, uh, you know, represent a footy club, put the jumper on, be around the boys and do something you love for 16 years. You know, I, I kind of sit there and go, you know, if you, had one, if you had one great year and played in one premiership or have 16 years and playing at the top level, which would you prefer? So, like, I, I still see myself as very, very fortunate to be able to play for that long. So, yeah, it would have been nice, but at the same time, I'm not kicking myself. I was still able to play at the level. Because depending on who you talk to, uh, if you were to play in that 97 game against the Crows for St Kilda, and if you were to be traded to the Swans a year earlier, they would have won the 2006. Uh, do you get that a lot that people feel if you were playing in the sides that, uh, like the Swan side's 06 side and the yeah. St Kilda side, they feel that they, they would have won? Well, nowadays, the older you get, the more I tell them, absolutely, we would have won. Um, yeah. And that's the fun of it. But, uh, oh, look, in 97, yeah, it would have been, would have been great. You know, I would have been up against Sean Wren, who was an informed ruckman at the time. We both had, uh, you know, very similar built bodies and similar careers. So outside of him winning a couple of back-to-back -back flags. But, you know, it would have been a really good challenge for myself. And then you're right, at the end of 05, when Sydney won their their premiership and I tried to get there in 06 and Hawthorne wouldn't do the, do the deal. That was kind of that, that you know, not that last ditch effort, but, uh, you know, that that's something that, you know, you've always wanted to be a part of. You see the clubs, you know, the hardest thing for, you know, for our career is the fact that we'll come back and start training a week after the grand final. So everyone who played in the grand final starting their holidays and we start in pre-season, so it was a bit frustrating. And uh, it would have been just nice to play throughout that September campaign and, and just be around the hype of a, a grand final week. Growing up in Melbourne, you, know, you understand that that whole week from lunches to dinners to, you know, the, the street parade to everything that surrounds it is just a, an enormous, uh, you know, atmosphere that's been built for that one week. So, yeah, I tried to do it, but unfortunately wasn't able to get there. But hopefully I would have been able to make some form of a difference. But 
as history goes, you never know. Obviously, you've said that you, you feel very blessed with the footy career that you did have, but do you kind of look back in a sense of timing may have not have been the best? I mean, 2002 was your last season with the Saints, and after that, they kind of went on to be a pretty successful side, unlucky in a couple of prelims. You're at the Hawks. The, the trade deal didn't happen, but when you did leave, they go on to win the 2008 flag. Does that kind of play uh, as well? I kind of, I do. I, I sit there and go, yeah, what happens if I had hung out and stayed with it? And I think, you know, I left at clubs at different reasons at different times. And, uh, you know, you know, St Kilda, unfortunately, didn't get along that well with a coach and wanted to, you know, change the perception of what was, you know, the perception of Peter Everett or Spider Everett, uh, you know, just, um, you know, a beer drinking bloke that doesn't do much. But I, I, I actually did offer a lot more in football at that stage. So I thought the easiest way would do that or the best way would be going to a different club, which I think I was able to do at Hawthorne. And then obviously trying to go from Hawthorne to Sydney for that for that premiership moment. Will I be, would I have still been at Hawthorne in 08? Yeah, if I'd knuckled down and, you know, did everything and, uh I probably could have been, but uh, woulda, coulda, shoulda. I kind of look at it a different way. I, I tell everyone now that it's not about the individual. I just set every club up. You know, I was at St Kilda. I set them up and then they went on to better things. Uh, I set the Hawks up. They went on to better things. I even went to Sydney and got them ready and they went on to better things. And even I come here to Labrador on the Gold Coast and I did the same thing, played one season. I didn't, we played in the grand final. We lost it, but then they went, in, went on to win three. So... I'm not about, it's not about me. It's about the footy club. I just set everyone up. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. I guess with, with the Hawks, though, what was the deal? I mean, you wanted to come to the Swans at the end of 05, correct? So that would be for the 06 year. Yeah. Uh, what happened? Was there a negotiation thing or the, the Hawks didn't want to trade with the Swans? What happened? Yeah, it was it was interesting because, yeah, I remember our last game was actually against Sydney and I was playing on Jason Ball and I said, Ballie, you know, you've got to, you know, you win a premiership this year, surely you've got to go on for another year. And he's going, no, nah, no, nah, no matter what happens, I'm out. And I'm going, oh, sweet. Okay, well, if he's out, they need another Ruckman. And we know Sydney's policy of bringing in a couple of uh, Ruckman or, you know, we knew Plugger was already there and Hawley and, you know, that, that, that's Sydney's reputation of getting a couple of players for a few years towards their end of their career. So, Look, I, I put it out there and I said, look, if the deal can be done, more than happy to do it. And the hardest thing back then, it's not like footy today where, yeah, you can sit there and come out and say to the media, I want to go. That's it. And that's normally what will happen because, you know, we're not like the NRL. We, you know, AFL players, we stay true for the whole year. And then some players might get traded. Very rarely in those days would you pick a team to go to. It, was, it just wasn't the right thing to do. And the players knew that I wanted to go to Sydney and Hawthorne didn't allow the deal to go through, didn't do the deal. So then I was actually stuck, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, you know, we're under contract. We've got nothing, nothing to – we can't do anything about it. It's up to the football clubs to come to a, an agreement. And Hawthorne didn't do the deal. And then I think, you know, the next year was probably one of the hardest football, years of football I've ever had because – I wasn't wasn't one in the leadership group. The boys knew I wanted to go to Sydney, but then even though you're still going to perform, and I think the first half of uh, 06 was really good at Hawthorne, but it's that perception and that feeling between the playing group that wasn't right. So that's why you see nowadays that you know if players want to go, they pretty much do the deal and let them to go. So that was that was a hard situation there. Want to read a, a quote from then Hawthorne president Jeff Kennett? Uh, I feel a bit sorry for Spider because he left a club that's clearly got a lot going for it at the moment. Uh, the sports people I've seen, particularly footballers who seem to get the greatest value from life and their sport after playing careers, are those that uh, relate best to the club that they served. Those who are a one-club player seem to have a better relationship than those with two clubs and probably better than three. So I hope Spider has made the right decision and we wish him well. Did you clash with Jeff Kennett or Jeff Kennett's comments there? What, how do you see that? Yeah, look, looking at it now, um, yeah, look, one club players do have a, a no doubt an affiliation with their football club. And if everyone could have a dream of being a, a one club player, I think 99% of players would love to be. But the reality is it never happens. It never works that way. And not everyone can be a one club player. 
if it was, uh, you know, there would be so many clubs now well and truly over the salary cap, well and truly paying under that. So it just doesn't work. It's 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 unrealistic. And and I still think I've got a, a great association with the St Kilda Football Club. I've got uh, a couple of mates out of the the Hawthorne Football Club and still got a great relationship with the Sydney Football Club. So in my in my book, I can actually say, well, you know what. I've got three clubs I can go back to and uh, not just the one. So I've actually now, I've actually opened up my football family three times more than a one club player. So the journey that you learn and the amount that I've learned going from St Kilda to a Hawthorne and then learning even going to Sydney, it's opened up my eyes so much more than if I was just to stay at the St Kilda Football Club. So I probably disagree. And and life after football absolutely hasn't uh, hurt me having all those three clubs, I know that it's actually probably benefited me in a way. And, um, you know, I know for a fact that, you know, Dane Swan talks about, you know, if he'd gone to North Melbourne, like he was going too early, do you reckon he would have been doing the circuit around Australia talking at the moment? Probably not. Mm. It's only because he played at the Collingwood football club. That is such a big footy club. You're a part of that. People want to hear his story. What's your relationship like now with Jeff Kennett? Yeah. If I was to get him on my radio show, he's happy to, take the call and, uh, you know, I think most people in football, I haven't, um, you know, if I rung anybody through the football world, they're happy to take my call. We rung Grant Thomas a couple of months ago when he said that, you know, drugs in sport was uh, a part of the St Kilda, St Kilda Footy Club and I disagreed with him and had a crack and it was more about the president, you know, not with the players. Um, so, no, I, I've, I've got an issue with Jeff at all. So, no, I don't find him, don't worry me. And you said that um, you got mates at uh, the Hawthorne Footy Club. I guess the question, the overall big question is, um, obviously inducted into the St Kilda Hall of Fame in 2019, I guess, you know, a couple of decades or so, a decade, sorry, away from the game. Do you consider yourself a St Kilda man or equally a Hawthorne man, Sydney man? How do you view yourself? Oh, look, I, I think my life throughout all of those clubs changed. Uh, you know, the 90s was a great era to play football, and that was the Saints. And then, you know, started getting a little bit more serious at uh, Hawthorne and a lot more professional. And then, of course, uh, Sydney. But, look, I, I see myself as a Saints person, played 10 years, started my career there, Hall of Famer there. Um, you know, now my son, if it was to go father and son, He's, he's St Kilda, so, you know, my whole, all my daughters and everyone have grown up following the St Kilda Footy Club, and the, if, I, if I have a relationship with any any of them, uh, it's probably the St Kilda Footy Club, and more so then, then Sydney after that. I'm still happy to, you know, do quite a few functions, and unfortunately we had the passing of one of the a, a mad Sydney su- supporter here on the Gold Coast only, um, you know, a few months ago, and, you know, she was a, a blood through and through. So, you know, I still have a really good relationship with a few of those. But, you know, I see myself more of a saint than anyone else. I've uh, dubbed Lance Franklin as the Tony Lockett of this generation. Uh, you had two years with Plugger at St Kilda in your early days, uh, two years with Buddy um, with the last two years of your time at Hawthorne. How would you compare the two? Oh, look, I think, um, yeah, look, it's a, oh, Plugger was an amazing player. You know, that was, that was the year of uh, just, you know, and Plugger, you know, he had to train. You know, he didn't train that hard. He naturally skillful. The ball would come to him. That's when, you know, you'd have, you know, a lot of the crowd just go from one end of the ground to the other end of the ground at Moorabbin. And it was more, you know, that kind of when when the chips are down, you know, and you hear the crowd just – Plugger was some killed as hope, I suppose, you could say, through those era as well. You know, they didn't play a lot of finals, but they still had this absolute gun full forward that looked like – just a bloke walking down the street. He didn't have, you know, he just, you know, the, the stories about half a dozen dim sims on the way home to Ballarat after a, a training session. And, you know, we used to call them plugger laps. So everybody would run outside the boundary, but not Tony Lockie who'd run 10 metres inside the boundary. But that's just what he did where, you know, you look at Lance Franklin and he come to a game naturally gifted, fit, could run all day, could cover the ground and very flamboyant. He loved it. That's what made him operate on a big stage. He was more of your Wayne Carey's than your Tony Lockett. Your Tony Lockett did his job because that's what he was good at. He didn't like all the press and the, the atmosphere that went with it. He just wanted to go out there, kick goals, call it a day, go home, 
and muck around with greyhounds where, you know, Buddy was all about the hype. He, he absolutely loved it. He played to it. And two completely different players that delivered the both for each team. Do you have any, uh, either a funny Buddy Franklin story or a Tony Lockett story? Oh, look, I think with, um, yeah, you know, with Buddy, I remember, because he got drafted on the Monday or the Sunday or the Monday, and then we all went to Kokoda on uh, on the Wednesday. So we all wrote, we all had to track the the 90, 92Ks over there, 96Ks over there at uh, PNG. And, you know, he'd only just got his passport freshly into the football club. Yeah, you know, the first couple of days, we were, you know, we had to, we had rations. You know, we had to try and get through on rations and carry our own food. And Buddy would eat his at breakfast, and then we would all have to share our food with him in the afternoons and at night. And we're going, mate, you can't keep doing this. Like all of us are on rations. We're all going to starve. You know, we're all you know struggling. And we hit a a big rock in his backpack, and we didn't tell him for two days. And he was so dog. He was absolutely filthy. And we go, well, there, you can't keep taking everyone's food because, you know what, we've got to keep carrying extra weight and all this kind of stuff. So he was filthy with us, but he was happy in the end. You know, he got through it and he was happy in the end. And, uh, you know, for me, for Plugger, I, I just always remember the first day you, you rock into a football club. You know, you rock into a football club and you've got all your, your big idols and you walk in and... Um, you know, you, you walk up to the first and you go, g'day, it's, uh, you know, my name's Peter, Peter Everett. And he goes, oh, g'day, I'm Tony Lockett. And you're like, oh, yeah, like, no shit. We know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> is it yeah. is it true a former St Kilda teammate, Barry Hall, was he a big influence on getting you to Sydney? Oh, look, I think it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt. Um, you know, he was well established at Sydney at the time. Um, so, and I knew a couple of the uh, the other people around Sydney as well. So, um, yeah, Hawley was good. And I think it's just, to be honest, I reckon it was more probably the way you, you conducted yourself over the last three or four years at Hawthorne as well. You know, that perception that I talked about a little bit earlier had changed a little bit. And we knew Sydney needed a Ruckman. So, look, having Hawley there definitely definitely didn't uh, interrupt proceedings, if, if not really helped it. But uh, I knew a few, few of the guys at Sydney. And, you know, a guy that used to look after me, Robert Hessian, he was very big, or not big up in Sydney, but he knew a lot of the hierarchy because he also looked after Craig O'Brien and Tony Lockett. So, you know, the track record of him getting players to Sydney, he had a lot of prize. So that, that helped as well. Tony Lockett, obviously, former St Kilda, went to Sydney, had a bit of a, a reputation for sometimes, you know, raising raising the elbow. Uh, Barry Hall had a bit of a hot temper. Um, what was it about uh, St Kilda bad boys going to Sydney? Yeah, yeah, it, it's interesting. And, gee, they had a, had a great track record of being able to turn them around. And, you know, if you talk about a culture in a football club and, you know, this is what you know, surprised me and this is what I love about, about Sydney and, you know, you... you you, you talk about Jeff Kennett or you talk about other players around Melbourne of this fishbowl of Melbourne and AFL footy is the greatest thing in the world and nothing else matters outside of AFL. You go to Sydney and you get a real good perspective on, on where you really sit in everything with you know NRL and then you come to the Gold Coast where I am now and you've got all these different sports around you and where the, the AFL really sit. And you sit down and look at Melbourne and you go, you know what, you guys are all full of this big hype yeah, it's a game, but you know what? There's so much more to it than than just what uh, you know, training and and just uh, playing. And you know, going to Sydney and seeing just the closeness of the football club and how football clubs ran, and how, you know what they're expect, what you're expected to be like, and and um, you know the way you train, the way everyone's treated. It's a whole different environment up there, and it's something that I think. A lot of guys appreciate and they can adapt to very quickly. It's the very basic theories. And, um, you know, I think that is the main thing is just the, the way that footy club is set up and ran is why they've been so successful for a long period of time and being able to change these so-called bad boys into, you know, great, great players and consistently great players as well. You were impressed uh, when you went up there, like I guess your first impressions on how they were all set up, the facilities and I guess the coaching staff? Yeah, look, the facilities weren't great. You know, we're coming from Hawthorne, who's just had a brand new facility built there at Waverley Park. Uh, unbelievable setup. 
and you go to Sydney and you know, you're still doing like it's it's a it's a good setup, but it's nothing like it was at Hawthorne. But it, it was just the culture of the place. It was just how how far they look forward. This their training practices, the things they were testing for, as in like you know, just hydration and stretching levels to make sure that, you know, you're not overdoing it. If you are overdoing it, they'll, they'll back you off a little bit. And the requirements they expect you to get to during pre-season before then you're able to get into football. And if you're having surgery, you do it here. And yeah, just all these little things. And what I loved about it was the fact that, you know, you'd have you know, Richard Collis and the top guys worrying about the football club. And then, you know, you had, uh, you know, the the... The accounts and all that looked after that. And then you had Andrew Ireland look after the, the football department. And then you had Paul Ruse worrying about the coaching. And not everyone was trying to put two bob. We've come back, you know, four years earlier from Grant Thomas, Thomas trying to run the whole St Kilda football club into a place where everyone's got their job. And you do your job, it's amazing what happens. What were your thoughts as uh, Paul Ruse as a coach? I'm guessing you would have played against him a few times, but... Um... What were your thoughts? I mean, great player. Sometimes a great player doesn't necessarily convert to being a great coach. Um, but what was your take from Paul Ruse, the coach? Yeah, look, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to have a lot of coaches you know, through, throughout my career, um, you know, from Stan Elves to um, Peter Swab to Alistair Clarkson. But the thing that got me with Ruse was he was more than a coach. He was a, he was a, a friend, he's a mate, but he was respected as a coach even though he was off-field, one of your mates or, or a friend, very similar to Johnny Longmire, and that's what I've been able to see. And you saw the tears of Johnny Longmire on the weekend. That was one of the best things I've seen all year in sport, knowing how hard it is and just being able to see that raw emotion. But, Ruzi, when you land in Sydney and the coach picks you up, you know, that, that just says so much. And... He was more concerned that Sheree, my wife, and my young fella, and when my daughters come up, they were all looked after. So it's it was more than than just being a coach. And what I loved about Ruzi is the fact that you'd have to walk past his office to go to our meeting room, and he'll drag you in. He'll drag anyone in, and you don't know if it was just to say good day, to see how the family and everyone's going, or was it to do something about football? You could have done this better. You could have done that better didn't matter which one it was because you knew that, you know what, he was, he, he's still at the end, he was still going to be concerned about you as a player trying to get you better at the same time. And come game day, yeah, he knew who to crank up and have a go at to make sure they, they turned, up, turned up, you know, the next quarter or two. But I, I thought he was definitely more than a coach and uh, that's what made a real big difference when I went up there was the fact that he actually cared more about the family life as well because they realised how important the outside is to make sure the inside's working well. I'm biased, but uh, he's Mr Nice Guy. Did he give any good sprays out during your uh, two years with the Swans or any, I guess, uh, any, any like a saying or anything that, uh, that people would find funny? Uh not me, but, you know, which one would be surprising would be, you know, he, he absolutely sprayed Adam Goods one day and Goodsy was one of the greatest players of all time. But, you know, Goodsy was, you know, he gets very political at times, Goodsy. And, uh, you know, he said, Goodsy, if you want to go down that political path, by all means, you go down there. But if you want to play football, stay here and let's play football. And uh, didn't say it in those terms, said it in other terms. But uh, it was one of those ones which was a, a moment where, you know, if you're spraying our best player, and having a crack at him and saying, you know what, you're, it's about football right now. You know, we're at halftime during a game. and uh, But, yeah, no, he was, he was happy to absolutely give it when it had to be given. And what I love about AFL football is that you don't put everybody in the one basket. You, you're able to pick and choose people out and have an absolute crack at them. And, uh, you know, in AFL, you accept it, you move on, and you learn from it. So, yeah, no, he was, he was able to give a good spray. Not the, not the best ones out of all the coaches I've had, but he was up there. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a second. Now, you've played with some great midfielders. I think you won uh, Robert Hart and two Brownlow medals. Uh, Shane yeah. Hopwood, 99 Brownlow medalist. How did the Sydney, uh, the Sydney midfield uh, measure up or how did you see them? Because we kind of got the uh, term, the ugly ducklings, the ugly style of play. How did you find them? 
Yeah, the thing I loved about the Sydney midfield, and yeah, we had our, you know, St Kilda, we were lucky enough, Robert Harvey and Nathan Burke and these guys, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Croft, and then, you know, you have Luke Hodge, uh, Sam Mitchell, Jordan Lewis at Hawthorne. So, you know, some quality midfielders throughout. But what I loved about Sydney that no other team did was the fact that, well, not, they did it, but they didn't do it to the extent of Sydney was, when you've got guys like Jude Bolton and, and you know and Brett Kirk and and McVeigh and these guys, is that if Jude Bolton went to Brett Kirk's man, and even if he had to tag take his man for three or four minutes, Jude Bolton would work harder to make sure Kirk's man didn't get the ball to show him respect. You know, I mean? so he he worked harder on Kirk's man than he would on his own man to show Kirky to how much he meant to make sure that his man didn't get off the chain. And it was kind of that, and that's how they they really appreciated each other. And it's something you don't see often, trying to make their teammate the best player. And they did that week in, week out. And they were the toughest midfielder, as you were. As you said, they were the ugly ducklings. Uh, I don't think Jude thought he was ugly, but uh, everyone else <laughs> thought he was. But, no, everyone else was. But, yeah, so that, that's what I loved about it, it was just their respect to work for their teammates was something that I'd never seen at that level at any football club I'd been to. And that's, they're the little things that you say, you know what, that's why they've been successful for a long period of time. If you did have to name uh, one midfielder who you thought, not necessarily the best, but was like a, if, if he was in the middle, you knew that you were going to be all right being, being able to tap the ball to him or if you just had to nail it down to one player in the midfield for the Swans. Oh, for the Swans, um, oh, tough. I, I'd, 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 probably, I'd go Kirky still. I'd go Kirky, even though not the prettiest of kicks, but you knew that if you put it in that vicinity, if you put it around that area, you'd he, he, grab it and you'd be in and under and you'd dish out the handball and something else would happen. So I'd definitely love to continue to hit it to Kirky. So, yeah, that that's the kind of player. I normally... Normally, if you look at other clubs, you like to hit at those players that can, you know, run on and then use the ball, you know, hit it out to a bit of open space and get somebody on the run. But, um, you know, in and under and in close games and the kind of game you play at the SCG, Kirky was the go-to. I guess at the end of the uh, 2008 season, you're um and an R, and if you're going to if you're going to play on, it was basically Ruzi that kind of said, well, what do you want to do? And you couldn't quite sort of answer it. Is that correct? Yeah, I went and had a chat with Bruzy and said, um, you know, my body was, I couldn't jump nowhere near as well as I used to be able to. But, um, you know, you look at mummy now and you think, okay, could you have gone another year? And Bruzy come up with a good thing. He goes, do you, could you do, are you looking forward to another preseason? Mm. I said, no one looks forward to a preseason. <laughs> I said, nah, nah. And he goes, well, there, there's your answer because you've got to do a preseason to actually get to game one. Yeah, you know, another big preseason just to get to game one to see if it's all viable and worthy. Are you prepared to do that? And, yeah, that was kind of, yeah, me saying, you know what, yeah, I've, I've, I've had a good run. Had a good run. Because 291 games, I mean, there's probably a couple of suspensions there, but um, was the... No, first... hang on, hang on. Only one week. Only one week. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Only one week. <laughs> was, the allure, was the allure of uh, 300 games, Was did that play in your mind? Yeah, it did a little bit, but at the same time, I think mentally I'd kind of checked out as well. Um, you know, I know towards the end of the season, I was really looking forward to travelling around Australia and I had the motorhome booked and I was ready to go. So I think, um, you know, footy had changed a lot from when we had started. Uh, you know, you look at all your team meetings, you look at everything done on computer and, you know, that was beyond what we were you know, we love footy because we love being out on the track. We don't mind doing the weights, but, you know, it's all about footy. It's not about trying to work it out on a computer and seeing where everyone plays. And I think mentally we'd pretty much done our dash. So, no, I was happy with it. I was happy. And, yeah, 291, is it worth the preseason and everything for those yeah. nine games? Yeah, it would have, would have always been nice to get to 300, but at the same, it's still good to get to 291. And I guess, you know, the the chat about great athletes that maybe go on one or two years too too many, I guess, like, if, we, if you're done, you sort of go out on your own terms, go out and form. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's still like playing afterwards. You know, people go, now, would you come and play Masters or do you want to come and play this? You know, you look fit enough to still do it and you go, if I did my knee or my shoulder now, what for? You know, it'd be, it's just stupid. So you're right in that way. You don't want to, you know, finish your career. You know, you might play three or four games. You got a young kid coming out and you're trying your best, but, you, you know, you're playing two's footy for the end of your career and it kind of, yeah, it's just, I was happy. I was still playing senior footy. Was I playing the best I'd ever played? Probably not. So it was probably, you know, time to say, you know, enough's enough. And my body wasn't getting any younger and still sore every time you've half to your play. So you touched on it uh, over the 291 game career. Had a fair few coaches, most of them uh, at St Kilda. Um, who do you feel, though, overall got the most out of you? Uh, oh, yeah, I still reckon Stan Alps. Stan Alves in the early days, uh, you know, he put a good coaching. His fitness guy, Johnny Moncrief, Robocop, um, we called him. He was an ex-policeman and uh, he was our fitness guy. But I think he, he really taught us how to train and, uh, you know, start preparing yourself for games. So I thought Stan Alves was probably one of our, our better coaches. We had a, a love-hate relationship, you know, when you're 23, 24 and you think you know everything. And, you know, the, the, yeah, Alves, he, he could fly off the end of the handle and have an absolute, you know, crack at anyone. And uh, we, we took the mickey out of it, but we loved it and we, we respected it. And I thought... He probably got the best out of us. Getting the best out of you or teaching you what it takes to be a consistent AFL player, that's probably what he taught us, which then, you know, really helped me for the next 10 years. Any insight into Malcolm Blight? He had a pretty short stint as St Kilda coach. I think he was the, was it the weekend coach or the game day coach? Uh, Any insight into that? Oh, Blighty was a different cat, as a lot of people would know. Um, you know, they got him off the golf course. We signed him up here at uh, Jupiter's Casino at the uh, Chinese restaurant there, and he signed up for oh, whatever it was. And, um, look, I remember Blighty, he'd always say, you know, don't ring me. Uh, okay, we've got training on Monday. Don't ring me Tuesday because he's playing golf. We train on Wednesday. Thursday, watch the footy show to see if you're in the in the team. If you're in the team, I'll see you on Friday. If you're not in the team, don't ring me and winch because I've got a senior team to worry about. I'll see you on Monday. And that was Blighty's theory. It was, and you know, we're playing professional AFL football, and this is the goat of coaches coming down to tell us this. It was it was a remarkable eight months, but yeah, it was it was a different time. And yeah, the football club didn't go forward, unfortunately. <laughs> Eight months, and there wasn't a lot of development in the young blokes either. Was he um, a smoker at this time, Malcolm Blight? Oh yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> he could, him and, between him and Grant Thomas and Rod Butters, uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if those others darted. I think Grant did, but yeah, they were. They would always go off to the corner and uh, light up, and yeah. So it was. Look, it wasn't. From a player's point of view and being able to go out and have a few beers and bloody had a few beers, we're thinking, how good is this? This is, this is AFL footy. The coach is telling us to have a few beers. This is great. But, yeah, it did not help our footy. Didn't help our footy and you wonder why. <laughs> um, I uh, asked about uh, Rusey and his sprays. Um, I guess in a swan sense, uh, everyone always remembers a Rodney Ede spray. But when talking to Rodney Ede, he, uh, I don't know if he uh, tends to want to forget or maybe can't remember some of the great ones, but you've had a fair few coaches. Uh, any rememberable sprays? Oh, look, I, yeah, Stan Ells was always was always good. I used to love the one, Stephen Zilla, we'll play our 100th game, and Stephen Zilla used to uh, play at the Secure Footy Club, and we're playing against um, Frio, and Andrew Wells was playing. Now, Andrew Wells was a pretty quick player. And uh, it was just, you know, because you've got to be there in the moment of, of watching a spray too. And Stan Alves is kicking chairs and throwing chairs around the room and Dirty Zilla's walked in. He's gone, Zilla, are you quicker than Wells? Are you quicker than Wells? And you don't know what to do. Oh, uh, yes, yeah, I am. No, you're not. Why are you starting behind him? Why are you starting behind him? You've got to run, Stephen. And, like, they go on and on and on. I... Oh, I absolutely like some of the sprays. Like I can, you know, you can go on for days and days and days about all the different ones. But when you're in there, like, and I think, like you said, Rodney E doesn't really remember. I coach under 14s here at Southport, and over the weekend I gave them a spray. I was just said to the boys, "Do you want me to be honest, or do you want me to tell you what you want to hear?" And they go, "No, no, be honest." So I just opened up and I said, "Well, so far this is embarrassing." 
and I dropped a couple of other words in. Then I started pointing at blokes and giving it to them, and I, I can't remember what I said, uh, but one of the water boys, one of the coaches, uh, the dad's been a water runner, he goes, oh, that was one of the greats. He goes, that was awesome. But they got up and won, so I was happy. So it made him a lot better player. I think the one that Darren Creswell told me about Rodney Ead, he said to Matthew Nix, he goes, I'll give you uh, th- uh, three clearances just in case you lose two. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love – well, there's so many different ones. Oh, they're very very clever the way they do it as well. So, yeah, there's some, there's some great sprays out there. Now, you, you sort of said uh, that uh, you've had a bit of a love-hate relationship with Grant Thomas. Um, you essentially left St Kilda because I guess you weren't seen eye to eye. Was there any sprays or v- verbal stouches there? Because I know, obviously, back in uh, 2019, uh, there was a bit of a back and forth on a radio show in regards to drugs being rife at the St Kilda Football Club. Yeah, no, oh, Tomo, yeah, Tomo had his say and, um, you know, we all agreed or, or disagreed and, you know, we had a a couple of, um, you know, I suppose, moments you could call them. And, you know, they're, they're so hard to kind of pinpoint all ones. But, um, you know, I think that sash on the radio was was one that, uh, you know, you're trying to stick up for the St Kilda Football Club because at the time, you know, it was Grant Thomas said, yeah, drugs were rife through the St Kilda Football Club, yet it was the president and one on it, not, not, a, not the players. And, um, you know, I just went out there to stick up for the players and, you know, I remember being, you know, he, he was saying, I can say anything on a podcast. I said, you can't say anything on a podcast. It's still, you know, you, you're still disrespecting or, you know, it's still the same as broadcasting legally on a radio station. So, yeah, look, I didn't, not that I, so I didn't say eye to eye to Grant Thomas. I was, you know, like I could still call him now and would still, you know, have a chat and uh, he'd more than happy to come on my show. So I, I think, um you might have your souches, but I think you've got a, a, a mutual respect for for each other about the content you're talking about. And if, if that is about football or if it's about the football club, um, everyone's got to have a say. And, you know, I remember once, you know, having a crack at Alistair Clarkson because it was about coming back early from, from uh, pre-season. And we said, okay, well, we had to sign a, a form because he wanted a – to make it, um, oh, what do you call it? Uh, so no one knows who who votes. Okay, so no one no one's allowed to know who votes if we come back early or not. But we had to sign a form, and I said, well, if we all sign a form, you're going to know who voted for, to come back early and who voted for dinner. Anonymous. I said, why don't we just do the vote, and then if we all agree or disagree, then we sign the form. No, no, no. So there's only two players that said. Don't come back early. And that was myself and Johnny Hay. So, <laughs> so it wasn't really anonymous, was it, when we had to sign a form? So I think it's that. There's mutual respect. But, you know, I was, well, I always ask the question. A lot of questions that a lot of blokes probably wouldn't. Two years with uh, Alistair Clarkson, uh, did you sort of see him going on to be one of the modern day uh, great coaches? Yeah, look, it's the, the day he rocked up, I remember ringing him a couple of days beforehand and we said, oh, look, do you want to uh, come to a barbecue? We're having a boys' barbecue uh, on Sunday. We're starting training on Monday. Um, do you want to come and meet a few of the boys? And uh, he said, no, no, no. He goes, when I get there Monday, he goes, I'll hit them straight between the eyes and he'll go, they know what we're here for. And that was his comment on the phone. And uh, ever since that day, it still rings to me now and I, I, I use it myself because I think it was a – Definitely, a, a, you know, an absolute steal in himself saying, I know what needs to happen. I know how it's going to happen and it will happen. And proven to point that it that it did happen. And, uh, you know, it didn't make a lot of friends early because he cleaned out a lot of the older stock there at Hawthorne, but proven to the point that four premierships later, well, I wouldn't, you know, that's, that's what it takes. You, uh, we've seen that Sam Mitchell's going to potentially take over uh, either next year or they've got some form of, um, I guess, succession plan. Do you see Clarko coaching another side? Oh, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. Oh, I'd be actually, and I know he's a man of his word, so he'll probably stay on at Hawthorne next year. But um, saying that, if the tension between them, and I know the media's building up a little bit at the moment and Sam's trying to put out fires and saying it's not too bad, if the tension got too bad um, and he did leave, there's no doubt. You know, you look at some of the clubs around there'd be half a dozen clubs that would be absolutely mad not to attract Alistair Clarkson. And, 
what he's been able to do, he'll change the culture of a football club. He, he'll change the mindset of a lot of players. And, you know, even Betty McGlynn, who played at Hawthorne, and then he went to Sydney, he proved to Sydney how to really run. Even though Sydney were a top team, he still showed them how to, you know, different ways of running and brought from Clarko's background. So there's plenty of value out there for Alistair Clarkson. I guess if there was to be a transition with the Hawks, now would be the best time. They're kind of uh, rebuilding, I guess you could put it, um, as opposed to I know when Collingwood did the uh, Malthouse Bucks transition. I kind of, I mean, I'm nowhere near a Collingwood supporter, but I think maybe Malthouse had another year or two in him as head coach. Um, but I think yeah. they really want to get Bucks into that spot. So, if would you say that it's the perfect time for the transition to happen? Well, it's a hard one. I reckon they might have even jumped the gun knowing that Sam Mitchell was going to be attracted by Collingwood and a couple of other clubs. So they said, all right, let's make this transition period. Um, you know, Sydney are a little different. They, I think they do it smartly. Um, you know, John Longmire has been there, again, nearly as long as Paul Roos. So I think that transition is a lot smoother than, than something like the other clubs are just trying to think, okay, let's try and follow the Sydney model, but they just haven't got it right yet. So I don't mind, you know, uh, coaches going and looking at other clubs like Sam did, but at the same time, I reckon it's a little bit too early. You know, they've got a young bunch of guys. We saw Hawthorne on the weekend just, you know, get over the line with 35, I think 10 guys with under 35 games. So, you know, he's starting to build. And what Clarko brought into that club were players like, you know, Sydney do as well. Is you know, your Brian Lakes from the Bulldogs who was playing two footy, end up playing in a couple of flags. Your Burgoynes, you know, your Dave Hales, these kind of blokes. He's able to bring these in. So can Sam do that? I, I, I still reckon Clarko could, could have made finals in the next couple of years and build another build another football club. So I think he's a little bit stiff, to be honest. I kind of would like to see a bit more of like the elder statesman kind of, I guess, as the the figurehead, so to speak, who can rally the troops and, you know, really good at halftime with the speeches and then have your really analytical, strategic, younger coach. Could that type of model work, perhaps? Uh, Yeah, I reckon the, the ego of a coach is that I coach. The end, you know, the end bucks comes with me. This is this is how we're going to do it. And and realistically, come selection time or or come certain times in a game, big decisions have to be made, and they have to be made by one person. And you live and die by that decision. So I think you need that one main head coach who says, "No, this is how it's going to happen, and this is what we're going to do. I'm going to back my system because that's what I want to do." So and that's what you're seeing with Sam and Clark at the moment. They're a little bit different, and when you, there's so many different ways of looking at it. You know, Sam will be there for five, six, eight years. Will Clarko be there in eight years? Probably not. Where Sam can grow with all these young kids and, and grow through them. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one, but I still believe you need that one main coach just sitting there because that is where it all lies. I'm just pulling this one out of absolutely nowhere. A good couple of years ago, I was calling for Horse's Head, um, but he's obviously uh, gone on and got a young crop of uh, swans and they're doing fantastic at the moment. If you had to pull a name out of your hat on who would be the succession plan from uh, John Longmire, who would you suspect or tip? Oh, look, I, to be honest, I haven't had a real good close, at, uh, close look at all these, um, you know, the, the assistant coaches. But they'd, they'd consider getting one in now. I know Johnny Blakey's been there for a long period of time. Um, I remember um, Brett Allison Fruity was there for a while as well, but I think he's, he's out of football now. But, you know, Stewie Jew would have been the prime example to be able to hang on, but didn't want to wait that kind of period. So you just don't know how long Horse is going to be there for either. You know, he's still, Horse would only, wouldn't even, oh, probably just over 50, so he's probably still got a few more years left in him. And as you say, because of that core young group, I think definitely they'll have somebody underneath now that they're slowly priming to get after horse, but uh, he's, he'll be there for quite a while yet, horse. Fingers crossed, of course. Yeah, no, I was hoping for a Stewie Jew that was going to be the succession plan, but I guess... Yeah. On more of a serious note, uh, the AFL, they just released a statement about uh, racism in the game. It's uh, on the back of uh, um, having to step in regarding the handling of a local league's uh, handling of a complaint, as well as uh, some online abuse targeted at some AFL players. Now, I guess someone who's been on the other side and gone through mediation with Scott Chisholm, in your opinion, what does the AFL need to do to combat racism? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one because it's really hard, especially at local leagues and local football. And, you know, you can give all the education you want to the players, but the hardest thing is, um, you know, a lot of this is coming from public as well. So it's trying to educate the whole the whole public. I, I don't think, um, you know, the things uh, like uh, Indigenous Round, they absolutely do a lot for um, football. I think probably even highlighting the amount of Indigenous players we have um, I, I still believe we could do a lot more community camps throughout some of the Indigenous areas and even some of the areas that, that aren't Indigenous, but just getting the, the clubs out there and, um, you know, having our players as role models and examples and talking to schools and, and talking to people that go to the footy about it. Because, yeah, all was done. Um, was, wasn't the easiest uh, part of my life, but at the same time, you know, I caught four weeks for a, a, a hefty fine, but then I had to go and do an educational um, bit in the uh, do some education in the city, which was uh, which was fantastic. I learned a lot. Um, you know, I'm really proud now that I'm able to travel through Australia and go through some of the local communities in you know the Northern Territory and the Kimberleys, and absolutely love it. And that's all off the back of education, learning, and understanding. So. It wasn't a whole lot of mine, but at the same time, what I was able to learn and now been able to do beyond that, I think um, we can still educate and learn a lot more. And, and let's be frank, our schools do a terrible job with history. You know, we, we learn about the history of, you know, the Europeans of somewhere or, you know, read a book about something to do with the United States of America, but we actually don't learn about our own native history here. You know, you go to New Zealand, you're still learning Maori, you're learning about such a great culture. We haven't got the Indigenous history here. Why don't they learn that at, at a young age of, you know, in primary schools? Because then those primary school children will definitely help educate their their adult, their, their mums and dads, asking them questions. And if they don't know the answers, they'll find the answers. So I think there's a lot of work we can do in in um, just from, from a junior um, perspective in schools and then bring it out, which will then come through through generations. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot more we can do. And I guess after the incident from 99 and moving forward, I mean, uh, what, what, uh, I guess one of the Indigenous players at St Kilda um, uh, would have been, uh, I guess, prior to that, you would have played with Nikki Winmar, yeah. a lot of great Indigenous players that you played with. Was there, I guess, sort of... Uh, did did was there like sort of fences that needed to be mended with those guys after the mediation or I mean what did that kind of look like because I know just sort of from a, a Swans uh, standpoint Adam Good's obviously a big activist um, and he sort of takes pride in sometimes being the the person like say if a kid comes from uh, out back and he's sometimes the first yeah. indigenous person they've ever met so I guess what what was that like what was I guess treading those waters after uh, mediation yeah it was. <sighs> It was more embarrassing for me than anything. And, you know, we'd played with, you know, the Cracker Brothers, uh, you know, Gilbert McCallum, Nicky Wimmer. I was there. My fourth game was when he lifted his jumper up and pointed to the colour of his skin. So, look, there was a lot of uh, – and, you know, I was good friends with Nicky as well. So it was just that – it was just the lack of education and um, the lack of understanding. And, you know, I, I absolutely have nothing against, you know, anyone at all and it was just one of those moments where you know I had to walk into the change rooms and and talk to Nikki and Nikki was really good because he went the other way and he explained different bits and pieces and a bit about the culture and a bit about what it means and how heartfelt and and you know what it, you know how bad it is and what he actually felt and how bad it felt for him and you know he was you know wasn't sheepish to come up, but we were both nervous about it because it's one of those things that, you know, embarrass us both because it shouldn't really, you know, it should never happen. So it was a, it's a it was a, a defying moment, a bad defying moment, yes, but at the same time, there's so much good has come out of it as well. So um, I think a lot of people have been able to learn a lot from, from that and also, you know, the other little instances that have been going on and, you know, it does have to be brought up and it does have to be be talked about and the more we do talk about it, um, I think the better it is. Here's a uh, another serious one. What's more competitive, AFL or commercial radio? Oh, 
Yeah, well, they're exactly the same. This is the funniest thing. I've been doing radio. I've only had two jobs. I played footy and I do radio. Uh, and funny because in radio, you've got your boss, which is the coach. You wait for ratings, which is your scoreboard. If your scoreboard doesn't go your way or your ratings don't go your way, the coach comes in, he gives you a spray. Your next week, you get another chance to show the scoreboard or show the ratings. So it's exactly the same. You're just trying to always put your best foot forward. But um, look, I've been very, I think I've been very fortunate to be able to, you know, go into radio and now do breakfast for, for 10 years on the Gold Coast out of, you know, a long football career. So I've been very fortunate. Um, I still love, you know, I still love training and still love being a part of being a part of football. And, you know, the Gold Coast has been now the home of football for nearly two years. So, you know, the AFL might be moving up here. Victoria might not have it for much longer. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> uh, obviously, yeah, the Olympics uh, 2032 going to uh, be in Brisbane and obviously I guess sharing that with uh, Gold Coast as well. Um, potentially, uh, I mean, New South Wales is in lockdown at the moment, but we saw the Gabba host the grand final last year. Do you think it will be soon? I mean, it's obviously it's an MCC contract. Uh, it's, it's, it comes down to dollars essentially. Do you think one day we will see a, uh, I guess, a travelling grand final, one state in Sydney, one time in Queensland, uh, or how do you see it? No, no, we'll get the NRL grand final this year. Um, that's one thing, you know, Gold Coast or Suncorp in Brisbane will get. I went to the Brisbane grand final last year and. Yeah, it was their only option. And even if they did have other options and they have Optus Stadium and they have, uh, you know, the Amy Park in Adelaide, I think the AFL Grand Final has to be at the MCG. I can't find, you know, I even told my young fella, you know, he's never been to the MCG. He's, he's always, he wants to play on it. He's never been to a Grand Final. We went last year and I said, mate, don't. This is a, this is a Grand Final, but it's not Melbourne. Mm. I said... When you're in Melbourne, you've got Federation Square going off. You've got tactics all week there. You've got the street parade. You've got the lunches, the dinners, every news bulletin. You've got 10,000 fans coming out to training. You're all crossing that bridge, um, walking into the MCG with every radio station on the outside, everyone cooking their barbecues, ready for grand final day. There's only one place it can be, and that, to me, is the MCG. And it's no, no different to Anzac Day. It's no different to Dreamtime. All of them have to be at the MCG. And between the teams that have been selected, um, like Dreamtime, like Anzac Day, that it's just the tradition of AFL football that it doesn't matter who you follow, you follow the game for that day. I'm high on the hill looking over the bridge to the MCG. Oh, Classic yeah. Paul Kelly. Now, I was going to I was gonna be a little smart-ass and say, oh, that inner Victorian, you, you, they can't take that game away from yous. But um, no, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a traditionalist. I actually, I mean, you know, I like to think it's uh, us versus them with, uh, you know, being a Sydney Swan supporter. But yeah. um, I, I do love the tradition of having it at the MCG. It, it does. It, 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 has a, it has a sense of ceremony and... Uh, I, I, I think there will be more of an argument to move it, but I'm, I'm pretty happy with it at the MCG. Yeah, there is no argument. You know, the MCG, uh, you got Mike Brady with that last day in September. And who can ever forget, you know, like in 2015, I think it was, when Richmond won their first for a long time. You had Jack Rewalt on stage with, stage with the Killers. Yeah. All those moments. Those moments you can't. You can't do anywhere else. That's what the MCG is built. The MCG is built for those moments. If it's Lionel Richie, whoever, it's just that is what football is. Actually, you might be able to help us. I'm, uh, created, uh, I've created a petition to uh, get Angry Anderson to sing Bound for Glory at, uh, as a pre-game or halftime, given that it's the 30th anniversary that they uh, did it for the Hawks in uh, West Coast game back in 1991. Would you be able to jump oh, on board yeah. with that? Oh, 100%. I love Angry Anderson. He's still an angry man. He told me to get off stage one day when I was trying to introduce him. He said, piss off. I said, all right, but I'll, I'll still vote for you, Angry, to come and do Bound for Glory. As long as you remember, who was it? No, that was in the NRL when uh, Billy Idol come out and bat oh. the bill. Yeah, yeah, you know, Angry Anderson was in the Batmobile. It was Billy Idol that they lost power. They couldn't, they could, he couldn't play because he had no power, apparently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And one thing I did love during the year was the fact that Gil McLaughlin, he, uh, he went down the slide for MD as, yeah. uh, as Meatloaf saying, it's about time we buried Meatloaf. We paid him 499000 too much. So I thought that was a classic.
That was pretty good. Um, before we wrap up, um, we saw on Channel 7 they had uh, Dancing with the Stars, All Stars. A little bit stiff not to get picked. Oh, I can't believe it. I, I don't know if it was because <laughs> because of COVID, what it was. I was, original, I was officially voted the worst ever dancer on Dancing with the Stars, but I was like, thank God nobody watches it. So nobody would have seen it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> they oh. could have got us back. They should have got myself. I think um, Andrew Gaze was one of the first ones off as well. So they should have got everyone who got kicked off first and then didn't. That would have been better entertainment. Peter Spider Everett, you're an absolute cult figure of AFL footy and a very hilarious in uh, the media. Obviously, a number one radio program there on the Gold Coast. Uh, enjoy the sunshine there on the Gold Coast. And uh, thank you for being very... Uh, um, gracious with your time and uh, talking to the Bloods of Old podcast. Greatly appreciate it. No worries at all. And, uh, yeah, hopefully uh, you know, the Bloods are going all right this year. Just dare to dream. You never know what Actually, could happen. Before we wrap up, who are you tipping to uh, take it out this year? Uh, to be honest, don't know. At the moment, if I could pick anyone, I'd say Geelong. You've got to lose one to win one. Um, after last year, you know, they should have won that. Um, and then, you know, you look at the Bulldogs and Melbourne, I still think they're beatable. And when it comes to September action, there's only, you know, there's kind of two teams I've, I'd never want to play in finals. One of them won't make it, which is Hawthorne, because they are, they just, they just never get blown away. You just never want to play them in big pressure games. And the other one, Sydney. And that's not because I played there or I played at both of them. But if you don't want to play two sides that are, going to give it everything and you don't know how good they are going to be on any given day and you know they're going to dish it up, they're the two teams. Absolutely. Dare to dream. Peter Spider Everett, thank you again. No worries. Cheers. Cheers.